Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Book the Fourth, Napoleon the Great. Chapter One, The Boy from Slopperton. Eight years have passed since the trial of Richard Marwood. How have these eight years been spent by Daredevil Dick? In a small room, a few square feet, in the county lunatic asylum, fourteen miles from the town of Slopperton, with no human being's companionship, but that of a grumpy old deaf keeper and a boy, his assistant. For eight monotonous years, this man's existence has crept slowly on, always the same, the same food, the same hours at which that food must be eaten, the same rules and regulations for every action of his inactive life. Think of this, and pity the man surnamed Daredevil Dick, and once the maddest and merriest creature in a mad and merry circle. Think of the daily walk in a great square flagged yard, the solitary walk, for he is not allowed even the fellowship of the other lunatics." lest the madness which led him to commit an awful crime should again break out and endanger the lives of those about him. During eight long years he has counted every stone in the flooring, every flaw and every crack in each of those stones. He knows the shape of every shadow that falls upon the whitewashed wall and can, at all seasons of the year, tell the hour by the falling of it. He knows that at such a time on a summer's evening the shadows of the iron bars of the window will make long black lines across the ground and mount and mount, dividing the wall as if it were in panels till they meet and absorbing together the declining light surround and absorb him too till he is once more alone in the darkness. He knows too that at such a time on the gray winter's morning these same shadows will be the first indications of the coming light that from the thick gloom of the dead night they will break out upon the wall, with strips of glimmering day between, only enough like light to show the blackness of the shade. He's sometimes been mad enough and wretched enough to pray that these shadows might fall differently, that the very order of nature might be reversed to break this bitter and deadly monotony. He sometimes prayed that looking up he might see a great fire in the sky and know that the world was at an end, how often he has prayed to die, it would be difficult to say. At one time it was his only prayer. At one time he did not pray at all. He's been permitted at intervals to see his mother, but her visits, though he has counted the days, hours, and even minutes between them, have only left him more despondent than ever. She brings so much with her into his lonely prison, so much memory of a joyous past, of freedom, of a happy home, whose happiness he did his best in his wild youth to destroy. The memory, too, of that careless youth, 
its boon companions, its devoted friends. She brings so much of all this back to him by the mere fact of her presence that she leaves behind her the blackness of a despair far more terrible than the most terrible death. She represents to him the outer world, for she's the only creature belonging to it who ever crosses the threshold of his prison. The asylum chaplain, the asylum doctor, the keepers and the officials belonging to the asylum, all these are part and parcel of this great prison house of stone, brick and mortar, and seem to be about as capable of feeling for him, listening to him, or understanding him, as the stones, bricks and mortar themselves. Routine is the ruler of this great prison, and if this wretched insane criminal cannot live by rules and regulations, he must die according to them, and be buried by them, and so be done with, out of the way. And his little room, number 35, will be ready for someone else, as wicked, as dangerous, and as unfortunate as he. During the earlier part of his imprisonment, the idea had pervaded the asylum that as he had been found guilty of committing one murder, he might very likely find it necessary to his peculiar state of mind to commit more murders, and would probably find it soothing to his feelings to assassinate anybody who might come in his way any morning before breakfast. The watch kept upon him was therefore for some time very strict. He was rather popular at first in the asylum as a distinguished public character, and the keepers, though a little shy of attending upon him in their proper persons, were extremely fond of peering in at him through a little oval opening in the upper panel of the door of his cell. They also brought such visitors as came to improve their minds by going over the hospital for the insane to have a special and private view of this maniacal murderer, and they generally received an extra donation from the sightseers thus gratified. Even the lunatics themselves were interested in the supposed assassin. A gentleman who claimed to be the emperor of the German Ocean and the Chelsea Waterworks was very anxious to see him, as he had received a dispatch from his minister of police informing him that Richard Marwood had red hair, and he particularly wished to confirm this intelligence. Another highly respectable person, whose case was before the House of Commons, and who took minutes of it every day on a slate, with a bit of slate pencil which he wore attached to his buttonhole by a string, and which also served him as a toothpick, the slate being entrusted to a keeper who forwarded it to the electric telegraph, to be laid on the table of the house and brought home, washed clean, in half an hour, which was always done to the minute. This gentleman also sighed for an introduction to poor Dick, for Maria Martin had come to him in a vision all the way from the Red Barn to tell him that the prisoner was his first cousin through the marriage of his uncle with the third daughter of Henry VIII's seventh wife, and he considered it only natural and proper that such near relations should become intimately acquainted with each other. A lady who pronounced herself to be the only child of the Pope of Rome by a secret union with a highly respectable young person, heiress to a gentleman connected with the muffin trade somewhere about Drury Lane, fell in love offhand with Richard from description alone, and begged one of the keepers to let him know that she had a clue to a subterranean passage which led straight from the asylum to a baker's shop in Little Russell Street, Convent Garden, a distance of some 250 miles, 
and had been originally constructed by William the Conqueror for the convenience of his visits to fair Rosamond when the weather was bad. The lady begged her messenger to inform Mr. Marwood that if he liked to unite his fortune with hers, they could escape by this passage and set up in the muffin business, unless, indeed, his holiness of the triple crown invite them over to the Vatican, which, perhaps, under existing circumstances, was hardly likely. But, though a wonder, which elsewhere would only last nine days, may in the dreary monotony of such a place as this endure for more than nine weeks, it must still die out at last. So at last Richard was forgotten by everyone except his heartbroken mother and the keeper and boy attending upon him. His peculiar hallucination being his fancy that he was the Emperor Napoleon I was, of course, little wonder in a place where every wretched creature fancied himself someone or something which he was not, where men and women walked about in long disjointed dreams, which had no waking but in death, where once bright and gifted human beings found a wild and imbecile happiness in crowns of straw and decorations of paper and rags, which was more sad to see than the worst misery a consciousness of their state might have brought them. At first Richard had talked wildly of his fancied greatness, had called his little room the Rock of St. Helena, and his keeper, Sir Hudson Lowe. But he grew quieter day by day, and at last never spoke at all, except in answer to a question, and so on, for eight long years. In the autumn of the eighth year he fell ill, a strange illness, perhaps scarcely to be called an illness, rather a dying out of the last light of hope, and an utter abandonment of himself to despair. Yes, that was the name of the disease under which the high and bold spirit of Daredevil Dick sank at last. Despair. A curious disease. Not to be cured by rules and regulations, however salutary those rules might be. Not to be cured even by the board, which was supposed to be in a manner omnipotent, and to be able to cure anything in one sitting, not to be cured, certainly, by the asylum doctor, who found Richard's case very difficult to deal with, more especially difficult, since there was no positive physical malady to attack. There was a physical malady, because the patient grew every day weaker, lost appetite, and was compelled to take to his bed. But it was the malady of the mind, acting on the body, and the cure of the last could only be effected by the cure of the first. So Richard lay upon his narrow little couch, watching the shadows on the bare wall and the clouds that passed across the patch of sky which he could see through the barred window opposite his bed, through long sunny days and moonlight nights throughout the month of September. Thus it happened that one dull afternoon, on looking up, he saw a darker cloud than usual hurry by, and in its train another, darker still, than a black troop of ragged followers, and then such a shower of rain came down as he could not remember having seen throughout the time of his captivity. But this heavy shower was only the beginning of three weeks' rainy weather, at the end of which time the country round was flooded in every direction, and Richard heard his keeper tell another man that the river outside the prison 
which usually ran within twenty feet of the wall of one side of the great yard, was now swollen to such a degree as to wash the stonework of this wall for a considerable height. The day Richard heard this, he heard another dialogue, which took place in the passage outside his room. He was lying on his bed, thinking of the bitterness of his fate, as he had thought so many hundred times, through so many hundred days, till he had become, as it were, the slave of a dreadful habit of his mind, and was obliged to go over the same ground, forever and ever, whether he would or no. He was lying thus, when he heard his keeper say, "'To think as how the discontented little beast "'should take and go and better himself "'at such a time as this here, "'when there ain't a boy to be had for love or money, "'which three shillings a week is all the board will give, "'as will come here to take care of him.' "'Richard knew himself to be the him alluded to. "'The doctor had ordered the boy to sit up with him at night "'during the latter part of his illness, "'and it had been something of a relief to him "'the blank monotony of his life "'to watch this boy's attempts to keep awake "'and his furtive games at marbles "'under the bed when he thought Richard was not looking "'or to listen to his snoring when he slept. "'You see, boys as as bold as brass many ways, "'as would run under bosses' heads and like it, "'and thinks it's fun to run across the railroad "'when there's an express engine coming.' and as will amuse themselves for the hour together with two pence worth of gunpowder and a lighted candle, still feels tiresome about sitting up alone of nights with him, said the keeper. But he's harmless enough, ain't he? asked the other. Harmless? Lord bless his innocent heart. There ain't no more harm in him than a baby. But it's no use of saying that, for there ain't a boy far or near that'll come and help to take care of him. A minute or two after this, the keeper came into Richard's room with the regulation basin of broth, a panacea, as it was supposed, for all ills, from water on the brain to rheumatism. As he put the basin down and was about to go, Richard spoke to him. "'The boy is going, then?' "'Yes, sir.' The keeper treated him with great respect, for he had been handsomely fed by Mrs. Marwood on every visit "'throughout the eight years of her son's imprisonment. "'Yes, he's a goin', sir. "'The place ain't lively enough for him, if you please. "'I'd lively him if I was the board. "'Ain't he had the run of the passages "'and half an hour every night to enjoy himself in the yard? "'He's going into a doctor's service. "'He says it'll be jolly, "'carrying out medicine for other people to take "'and gloating over the thought of them taking it. "'And you can't get another boy to come here.' "'Well, you see, sir, the boys about here don't seem to take kindly to the place. "'So I've got orders from the board to put an advertisement in one of the Slopperton papers, "'and I'm going to do it this afternoon. "'So you'll have a change in your attendance, maybe, sir, before the week's out.' "'Nothing could better prove the utter dreariness and desolation of Richard's life "'than that such a thing as the probable arrival of a strange boy to wait upon him "'seemed an event of importance.' He could not help, though he despised himself for his folly, speculating upon the possible appearance of the new boy. Would he be big or little, stout or thin? What would be the color of his eyes and hair? Would his voice be gruff or squeaky? Or would it be that peculiar and uncertain voice, common to overgrown boys, which is gruff one minute and squeaky the next? 
and always is in one of these extremes when you most expect it to be in the other. But these speculations were, of course, a part of his madness, for it is not to be supposed that a long course of solitary confinement could produce any dreadful change in the mind of a sane man, or surely no human justices or lawgivers would ever judge so terrible a punishment to any creature, human as themselves, and no more liable to error than themselves. So Richard, lying on his little bed through the long rainy days, awaits the departure of his old attendant and the coming of a new one, and in the twilight of the third day he still lies looking up at the square grated window and counting the drops falling from the eaves, for there is at last some cessation in the violence of the rain. He knows it is an autumn evening, but he has not seen the golden red of one fallen leaf or the subdued coloring of one autumnal flower. He knows it is the end of September because his keeper has told him so, and when his window is open, he can hear sometimes, far away, deadened by the rainy atmosphere, as well as by the distance, the occasional report of some sportsman's gun. He thinks, as he hears this, of a September many years ago, when he and a scapegrace companion took a fortnight's shooting in a country where to brush against a bush, or to tread upon the long grass, was to send a feathered creature whirring up in the clear air. He remembers the merry pedestrian journey, the roadside inns, the pretty barmaids, the joint purse, the blue smoke from two short pipes curling up to the gray morning sky, the merry laughter from two happy hearts ringing out upon the chill morning air. He remembers encounters with savage gamekeepers, of such ferocious principle and tender conscience as even the administration of a half-crown could not lull to sleep. He remembers jovial evenings in the great kitchens of old inns, where unknown quantities of good old ale were drunk, and comic songs were sung with such a chorus that to join in it was to be overcome by such fatigue, or to be reduced from wildest mirth to such a pitch of sudden melancholy, as ultimately to lead to the finishing of the evening in tears, or else under the table. He remembers all these things, and he wonders, as being a madman, it is natural he should, wonders whether it can be indeed himself, who once was that wittiest, handsomest, most generous, and best of fellows, baptized long ago in a river of sparkling hawk, Moselle and Burgundy, Daredevil Dick. But something more than these sad memories comes with the deepening twilight, for presently Richard hears the door of his room unlocked and his keeper's voice, saying, "'There, go in and tell the gent you've come. "'I'm a-coming in with his supper and his lamp presently, "'and then I'll tell you what you've got to do.' "'Naturally, Richard looked round in the direction of the door, "'for he knew this must be the strange boy. "'Now his late juvenile attendant had numbered some fifteen summers, "'to say nothing of the same number of winters,' duly chronicled by chilblains and chapped hands. Richard's eyes therefore looked towards the open door at about that height from the ground which a lad of fifteen has commonly attained, and looking thus Richard saw nothing. He therefore lowered his glance, and in about the neighborhood of what would have been the lowest button of his last attendant's waistcoat 
he beheld the small, pale, thin face of a very small and very thin boy. This small boy was standing rubbing his right little foot against his left little leg and looking intently at Richard. To say that his tiny face had a great deal of character in it would not be to say much. What face he had was all character. Determination, concentration, energy, strength of will, and brightness of intellect were all written in unmistakable lines upon that pale pinched face. The boy's features were wonderfully regular and had nothing in common with the ordinary features of a boy of his age in his class. The tiny nose was a perfect aquiline. The decided mouth might have belonged to a prime minister with the blood of the Plantagenets in his veins. The eyes of a bluish-gray were small and a little too near together, but the light in them was the light of an intelligence marvelous in one so young. Richard, though a wild and reckless fellow, had never been devoid of thought, and in the good days past had dabbled in many a science and had adopted and abandoned many a creed. He was something of a physiognomist, and he read enough in one glance at this boy's face to awaken both surprise and interest in him. So, said he, you are the new boy. Sit down. He pointed to a little wooden stool near the bed as he spoke. Sit down and make yourself at home. The boy obeyed and seated himself firmly by the side of Richard's pillow. But the stool was so low and he was so small that Richard had to change his position to look over the edge of the bed at his new attendant. While Daredevil Dick contemplated him, the boy's small gray eyes peered round the four whitewashed walls and then fixed themselves upon the barred window with such a look of concentration that it seemed to Richard as if the little lad must be calculating the thickness and power of resistance of each iron bar with the accuracy of a mathematician. "'What's your name, my lad?' asked Richard. He'd been always beloved by all his inferiors for a manner combining the stately reserve of a great king with the friendly condescension of a popular prince." "'Slosh, sir,' answered the boy, "'bringing his grey eyes with a great effort "'away from the iron bars and back to Richard. "'Slosh, a curious name. "'Your surname, I suppose. "'Surname and Christian name, too, sir. "'Slosh, short for sloshy. "'But have you no surname, then?' "'No, sir. Foundling, sir.' "'A foundling? Dear me, and you are called sloshy.' "'Why, that is the name of the river that runs through Slopperton.' "'Yes, sir. I was found in the mud of the river, sir, when I was only three months old, sir.' "'Found in the river, were you? Poor boy. And by whom?' "'By the gent who adopted me, sir.' "'And he is?' asked Richard. "'A gent connected with the police force, sir. Detective.' This one word worked a sudden change in Richard's manner. He raised himself on his elbow, looked intently at the boy, and asked eagerly, "'This detective, what is his name?' "'But no,' he muttered. "'I did not even know the name of that man. "'Stay, tell me, you know perhaps some of the men in the Slopperton police force, besides your adopted father?' "'I knows every man jack of em, sir, and a fine staff they is.' 
a credit to their country and a happiness to themselves. "'Do you happen to know amongst them a dumb man?' asked Richard. "'Lord, sir, that's him.' "'Who?' "'Father, sir, the gent who found me and adopted me. "'I've got a message for you, sir, from father, "'and I was going to give it to you, "'only I thought I'd look about me a little first. "'But stay. "'Oh, dear, the gentleman's took and fainted. "'Here,' he said, running to the door "'and calling out in a shrill voice, "'Come and unlock this here place, will you, "'and look alive with that lamp. "'The gentleman's gone off into a dead faint.' "'and there ain't so much as a drop of water to chuck over his face.' "'The prisoner had indeed fallen back insensible on the bed. "'For eight long years he had nourished in his heart a glimmering, though dying hope, "'that he might one day receive some token of remembrance "'from the man who had taken a strange part in the eventful crisis of his life. "'This ray of light had lately died out, along with every other ray which had once illuminated his dreary life. But in the very moment when hope was abandoned, the token once eagerly looked for came upon him so suddenly that the shock was too much for his shattered mind and feeble frame. When Richard recovered from his swoon, he found himself alone with the boy from Slopperton. He was a little startled by the position of that young person, who had seated himself upon the small square deal table by the bedside, "'commanding from this elevation a full view of Richard's face, "'whereon his two small grey eyes were intently fixed "'with the same odd look of concentration "'with which he had regarded the iron bars. "'Come now,' said he, with the tone of an experienced sick-nurse. "'Come now, we mustn't give way like this, "'just because we hear from our friends, "'because you see if we do, our friends can't be no good to us, "'whichever way their intention may be.' "'You said you had a message for me,' said Richard, "'in feeble but anxious tones. "'Well, it ain't a long one, and here it is,' "'answered the young gentleman from his pulpit. "'And then he continued, "'with very much the air of giving out a text. "'Keep up your pecker.' "'Keep up what?' muttered Richard. "'Your pecker. Keep up your pecker. "'Them's his words, "'and he never yet was known to make a dirty dinner "'off his own syllables.' "'It ain't likely, as he'll take and eat him. "'He says to me on his fingers, in course, "'Tell the gent to keep up his pecker "'and leave all the rest to you. "'For you're a pocket edition "'of all the sharpness as ever knives was nothing to, "'or else say I've brought you up for no good whatsoever.' "'This was rather a vague speech, "'so perhaps it is scarcely strange "'that Richard did not derive much immediate comfort from it.' but in spite of himself he did derive a great deal of comfort from the presence of this boy, though he almost despised himself for attaching the least importance to the words of an urchin of little better than eight years of age. Certainly this urchin of eight had a shrewdness of manner which would have been almost remarkable in a man of the world of fifty, and Richard could scarcely help fancying that he must have graduated in some other hemisphere and been thrown small as to size, but full-grown as to acuteness into this. Or it seemed as if some great strong man had been reduced into the compass of a little boy, in order to make him sharper, as cooks boil down a gallon of gravy to a pint in the manufacture of a strong soup. But, however the boy came to be what he was, 
there he was, holding forth from his pulpit and handing Richard the regulation basin of broth which composed his supper. "'Now, what you've got to do,' said he, "'is to get well, for until you are well and strong, too, "'there ain't the least probability of your being able to change your apartments, "'if you should feel so inclined, which perhaps ain't likely.' Richard looked at the diminutive speaker with a wonderment he could not repress. "'Staring won't cure you,' said his juvenile attendant, with friendly disrespect. "'Not if you took the pattern of my face till you could draw it in the dark. "'The best thing you can do is to eat your supper, "'and tomorrow we must try what we can do for you in the way of port wine. "'For if you ain't strong and well before that river outside, "'this wall goes down, it's a chance,' but it'll not be a long time before you seize the outside of this wall in question. Richard caught hold of the boy's small arm with a grasp. You never can think of anything so wild, he said in a tumult of agitation. Lord bless your heart, no, said the boy. We never thinks of anything that's wild. Our habits is businesslike. But what you've got to do is to go to sleep and not to worry yourself. And as I said before, I say again, "'When you're well and strong, we'll think about changing these apartments. "'We can make excuse that the lookout was too lively "'or that the color of the whitewash was injuring your eyesight.' "'For the first time for many nights Richard slept well, "'and opening his eyes the next morning, "'his anxiety was to convince himself "'that the arrival of the boy from Slopperton "'was not some foolish dream engendered in his disordered brain. "'No, there the boy sat.' whether he had been able to sleep on the table or whether he had never taken his eyes off Richard the whole night, there he was, with those eyes fixed, exactly as they had been the night before on the prisoner's face. "'Why, I declare we're all the better for our good night's rest,' he said, rubbing his hands as he contemplated Richard, "'and we're ready for our breakfast as soon as ever we can get it, which will be soon, judging by our keeper's hobnailed boots as coming down the passage with a tray in his hand. This rather confused statement was confirmed by a noise in the stone corridor without, which sounded as if a pair of stout working man's boots were walking in company with a basin and a teaspoon. Hush, said the boy, holding up a warning forefinger. Keep it dark. Richard did not exactly know what he was to keep dark, but as he had, without one effort at resistance, "'surrendered himself, mentally and physically, "'to the direction of his small attendant. "'He lay perfectly still and did not utter a word. "'In obedience to this youthful director, "'he also took his breakfast to the last mouthful "'of the regulation bread "'and to the last spoonful of the regulation coffee, "'aye, even to the grounds, "'which, preponderating in that liquid, "'formed a species of stratum at the bottom of the basin,' commonly known to the inmates of the asylum as the thick. For as the boy said, grounds is strengthening. Breakfast finished, the asylum physician came, in the course of his rounds, for his visit to Richard's cell. His skill was entirely at a loss to find any cure for so strange a disease as that which affected the prisoner. One of the leading features, however, in this young man's sickness had been an entire loss of appetite, and almost an entire inability to sleep. When, therefore, he heard that his patient had eaten a good supper, slept well at night, 
and had just finished the regulation breakfast, he said, "'Come, come, we are getting better, then. Our complaint is taking a turn. We are quiet in our mind, too, eh? Not fretting about Moscow, or making ourselves unhappy about Waterloo, I hope.' The asylum doctor was a cheerful, easy, good-tempered fellow, who humored the fancies of his patients, however wild they might be. And though half the kings in the history of England, and some sovereigns, unchronicled in any history whatever were represented in the establishment, he was never known to forget the respect due to a monarch, however condescending that monarch might be. He was therefore general favorite, and had received more orders of the bath and the garter, in the shape of red tape and scraps of paper, and more title deeds in the way of old curl papers and bits of newspaper, than would have served as the stock in trade of a marine storekeeper, with the addition of a few bottles and a black doll. He knew that one characteristic of Richard's madness was to fancy himself the chained eagle of the sea-bound rock, and he thought to humor the patient by humoring the hallucination. Richard looked at this gentleman with a thoughtful glance in his dark eyes. "'I didn't mind Moscow, sir,' he said very gravely. "'The elements beat me there, and they were stronger than Hannibal. "'But at Waterloo, what broke my heart was not the defeat, but the disgrace.' "'He turned away his head as he spoke, "'and lay in silence with his back turned to the good-natured physician. "'No complaints about Sir Hudson Lowe, I hope,' said the medical man. "'They give you everything you want, General.' The good doctor, being so much in the habit of humoring his patients, had their titles always at the tip of his tongue, and walked about in a perfect atmosphere of Pinnock's goldsmith. As the general made no reply to his question, the doctor looked from him to the boy, who had, out of respect to the medical official, descended from his pulpit and stood tugging at a very diminutive lock of hair, with an action which he intended to represent a bow. "'Does he ask for anything?' asked the doctor. "'Don't he, sir?' said the boy, answering one question with another. "'He's been doing nothing for ever so long but asking for a drop of wine. "'He says he feels a kind of sinking that nothing but wine can cure.' "'He shall have it, then,' said the doctor. "'A little port wine with a touch of iron in it would help to bring him round as soon as anything. "'And be sure you see that he takes it. "'I've been giving him quinine for some time past.' "'but it has done so little towards making him stronger "'that I sometimes doubt his having taken it. "'Has he complained of anything else?' "'Well, sir,' said the boy, "'this time looking at his questioner very intently "'and seeming to consider every word before he said it, "'there is something which I can make out from what he says "'when he talks to himself, "'and he does talk to himself awful something, "'which preys upon his mind very much.' "'but I don't suppose it's much good mentioning it either.' "'Here he stopped hesitating "'and looked very earnestly at the doctor. "'Why not, my boy?' "'Because, you see, sir, "'what he hankers after is against the rules of the asylum. "'Leastways, the rules of the board makes for him as such. "'But what is it, my good lad? "'Tell me what it is he wishes for,' said the medical man. "'Why, it's a singular wish, I dare say, sir.' "'but he's always a-talking about the other loon.' "'He hesitated, as if out of delicacy towards Richard, "'and substituted the word borders "'for that which he had been about to use. 
and he says, if he could only be allowed to mix with them now and then, he'd be as happy as a king. But of course I was telling him, when you come in, sir, that that's against the rules of the establishment, and in consequence is impossible. Because why, these here rules is like Swedes and nasturtiums, and can't be gone again. I don't know about that, said the good-natured doctor. So general, he added, turning to Richard, who had shifted his position, and now lay looking at his visitor rather anxiously. So general, you would like to mix with your friends out there. Indeed I should, sir. Those deep and earnest dark eyes with which Richard watched the doctor's face were scarcely the eyes of a madman. Very well, then, said the medical man. Very well. We must see if it can't be managed. But I say, General, you'll find the Prince Regent among your fellow boarders, and I wouldn't answer for your not meeting with Lord Castlery, and that might cause unpleasantness, eh, General? No, no, sir, there's no fear of that. Political differences should never... Interfere with private friendship. A noble sentiment, General. Very well, you shall mix with the other boarders tomorrow. I'll speak to the board about it this afternoon. This, luckily, is a board day. You'll find George the Fourth, a very nice fellow. He came here because he would take everything of other people's that he could lay his hands on, and said he was only taking taxes from his subjects. Good day. I'll send round some port wine immediately, and you shall have a couple of glasses a day given you. So keep up your spirits, General. Well, said the boy from Slopperton, as the doctor closed the door behind him, that ere medical officer's a regular brick, and all I can say is to repeat his last words, which ought to be printed in gold letters a foot high, and those words is, Keep up your spirits, General. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.